0: Hello and welcome to episode 123 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Legge, and our special guest today is Alex Thurston, visiting professor at Miami University of Ohio with a joint appointment in political science and comparative religion. He received a PhD in religious studies from Northwestern University in 2013 and is the author of Boko Haram. The History of an African Jihadist Movement, published by Princeton University Press in 2017. And he is also the author of Salafism in Nigeria, Islam, Preaching, and Politics, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. During 2013-2014, he was an International Affairs Fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. He also served as a desk officer for Nigeria at the U.S. Department of State. He taught for 4 years at Georgetown University and has written reports for the Brookings Institution, the Carnegie Endowment, the Center for Strategic and International Studies among others. Thurston also blogs at Sahel Blog, which covers politics and religion in the Sahel and the Horn of Africa. And you can follow him on Twitter at Sahel Blog. That's S A H E L B L O G. Welcome,
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here at Michigan State.
0: Now, Boko Haram emerged in Nigeria around 2002 and is now often considered one of the deadliest jihadist movements in the world. Your work does an extraordinary job at getting us to think beyond simplistic and often stereotyped views of Boko Haram. Uh, And it does this by taking religious ideas seriously and also local experiences and world views seriously. So how do you think your work helps us to move beyond seeing Boko Haram as either a puppet of kind of a global jihadist movement or as the product of poverty, political corruption, and maybe even inequality between Nigeria's north and Nigeria's South?
1: Well, thanks a lot for this question. And this was one of the starting points for my thinking about the book. I think that both of the explanations that you mentioned can be pieces of the story and pieces of the puzzle of understanding Boko Haram. Certainly there have been there's a formal relationship now between part of Boko Haram or an offshoot of Boko Haram and the Islamic State. And then there were earlier iterations of contacts between Boko Haram and, and Al-Qaeda and affiliates of Al-Qaeda. So certainly this transnational jihadism needs to be a part of the story. On the other hand, the external jihadists, the global jihadists often found that the leaders of Boko Haram were very difficult to control and that the influence that they wanted to have over the movement uh, was was frustrated by, by the different directions that, that the movement itself or at least certain leaders wanted to go in. The other explanation that you mentioned, I think, is also part of the story, namely, long-standing patterns of corruption in Nigeria, disparities between different parts of the country, uh, widespread poverty, low school enrollment, other socioeconomic problems in, in the Northeast, where Boko Haram was born. But as with the other explanation, I think that this, you know, has some real limits in what it can tell us. For one thing. The causal mechanism isn't always identified. You know, how do we go from just the fact that a place is poor or that a region is marginalized or feels marginalized? How do we go from that to having a jihadist movement there? A lot of times, the I think the, the proponents of that idea haven't spelled out exactly how you how you get from A to B in that line of thinking. And then at the same time, I think this explanation about poverty and structural factors doesn't tell us why Boko Haram emerged in this particular place at this particular time. There are other parts, even nearby in Nigeria or in neighboring countries, elsewhere in West Africa, elsewhere in the world, that are also poor, that have unemployed and underemployed young men, you know, regions with particular histories of, of alienation and so forth, and you don't necessarily get jihadist movements in all those places. So in the book I try to tell what I hope is a more complicated story about the, the local specificities of
0: the movement. What struck me in reading the book Boko Haram, the history of an African jihadist movement, is how careful you were at being very specific about the local context of northeastern Nigeria—not just even Nigeria, but this northeastern corner. And one of the ways you do this is you bring in the agency of a whole number of actors, Nigerian actors, and two stand out, of course, in the analysis of Boko Haram: the founder, Mohammed Yusuf, and his successor, Abubakar Shekau. So in many ways, these two men reminded me of the 18th, 19th century West African jihadists who founded states all across the region as sort of prophetic leaders who wanted to purify uh, there are communities of what they perceive to be improper practices uh, of Islam. They wanted to impose Islamic law. They wanted to kick out the outsiders and, and so on. Uh, Uthman Fodio, of course, in northern Nigeria and others. Even the Mahdi in, in Sudan in mm-hmm. the 1880s. Um, so can you tell us about how each of these two leaders, first Muhammad Yusuf and then after his death, Abu Bakr Shekha, his successor influenced the evolution of Boko Haram.
1: This is a really interesting topic about the, the parallels between jihadist leaders today and in, in you know West Africa and elsewhere, and then some of the, the pre-colonial jihad leaders. And I think this is a you know really fruitful arena for comparison and, and scholars like Murray Last and and more recently uh, Scott McAkern have have written really compelling treatments about, you know, deep patterns in the history of northern Nigeria or northeastern Nigeria. One key difference, though, I see, or several key differences I see between, you know, these these pre-colonial jihad leaders and, and then the current leaders, and this is not just Boko Haram, but elsewhere, too. There are theological differences, so a lot of the pre-colonial jihad leaders of course came out of, you know, Sufi backgrounds, still had affiliations to to a major, you know, Sunni legal school or madhab, whereas, you know, the jihadist leaders in, in Africa today and around the world typically tend to identify as Salafis and to say that they have no legal school, they're very opposed to Sufism, so it's really a kind of a different worldview. Then too. The context is just so different, right? The 21st century, you know, war on terror, highly urbanized societies, just very, very different. And I think on one level, there's no comparison between the level of, of knowledge that that somebody like Othman Danfodio had and the level of knowledge that that Yusuf had. I think I think, you know, so I don't want to put them in the same basket. I think that I think some of those pre-colonial jihad leaders had had major, major intellectual accomplishments that that the current crop of jihadist mm-hmm. leaders have never matched. At the same time, if Uthman Danfodio came along in northern Nigeria today and attempted to start the same kind of jihad that he started in 1804, I think he would immediately be placed on many, you know, different terrorist blacklists, right? And, and would be, you know, forced uh, underground. I mean, the 21st century again, just such a such a different context. In any case, I mean, turning to like the, the personalities and, and the impact of, of Yusuf and shakao, the way I would summarize it, I think briefly, is is that Yusuf was able to build this mass movement in the 2000s basically in the open you know there were elements of the movement that were um clandestine particularly toward the end of his life but for a lot of the time he he was really able to operate within the open and and in the early part of his career to make you know possibly certain connections with elected officials and even in the later part of his career to operate a kind of a society within a society and there's more accounts coming out about how he had microcredit schemes, how he would help people get married, how he had a whole network of different mosques and schools and so forth. So, you know, he seems to have had this kind of charisma and this this even organi- organizational acumen for for building this society within a society. Then when we turn to Shaka, I think there's almost certainly a split between the kind of media image that we get of Shaka and then and then how he must be behind the scenes. The media image of him and i think it's partly or largely because he's cultivated this image of, of a madman right or at least of somebody Through the
0: youtube videos and the like
1: exactly yeah and and i think he's often deliberately used different voices you know adopted a very mocking tone made really wild and sort of extravagant threats. You know, he's famous for things like saying that he was gonna sell the kidnapped girls from Chibok Mm -hmm. in the market, wild sort of references even to Abraham Lincoln and Margaret Thatcher and so forth. So he's been the face of this kind of, you know, almost like deranged Boko Haram. But on the other hand, he's somebody who must have behind the scenes been able to keep the movement organized. So Muhammad Yusuf was killed in, in 2009. After a mass uprising by Boko Haram, Yusuf was taken into custody and, and killed by police. And so Shakao was really one of the key architects of rebuilding the movement, holding it together as an underground movement, and, and presiding over this period of expansion in 2014-2015 when Boko Haram you know, seized significant swathes of territory in the Northeast, so I think sometimes, again, this madman image has has even been sort of a deliberate cover he's adopted, and, and that actually he's been a fairly effective leader. Over time, he he really antagonized people, not just within the larger society, but within Boko Haram itself. And, and in a sense, his authoritarianism and capriciousness, at least if we take the accounts of his enemies, his behavior prompted this major schism that came in the movement in 2016. So you know, if he was able to count some successes as a leader, he also counted tremendous failures.
0: And we'll return to this schism later when I ask you about the relationship that Boko Haram has had with foreign jihadists. And and you already mentioned a couple of these. But what I want to do is just ask you about your sources for this kind of work. Nigeria is a very complicated place. It's a place where, what, two-thirds of the population is poor, It faces all sorts of challenges. You're obviously not from Nigeria. Uh, You maybe can take this moment to also tell us a little bit about your own background and how you came to the topic, but I'm also very interested in what kind of written and oral and other types of sources you used in this documentary history that you've written of Boko Haram, And, and maybe while doing that, you can mention the importance of language training, whether it's hausa or Arabic or a combination. So in terms of the sources, I should
1: say, first of all, that I I was in a particular kind of position when Boko Haram really burst onto the scene in that I was in the midst of doing my doctoral research on sort of adjacent aspects of Islam in northern Nigeria. And I was working on what became my first book about the Salafi movement and, and primarily nonviolent actors. But some of the key individuals that I was looking at were people who had been in the same circles as Muhammad Yusuf and, and had even been close to him at points before they, before they broke with him, before they broke with him over doctrinal issues. So, you know, and I was doing field work in Nigeria in, in 2010 and then in, in 2011, 2012, again, not looking directly at Boko Haram, but still in a position where I think I was one of the, you know, one of rel- a relatively small number of Americans who were in a position to, to have the context and to to say something that put Boko Haram in, in a more local frame, but then I should say I, I I elected not to do direct field work in the Northeast as as part of the book, and and there are people who have done tremendous and interesting field work there. Hilary Matfis in particular, I would mention her her book Women and the War on Boko Haram is is based on some really interesting and courageous field work that she did in the Northeast, talking to women and talking to a whole host of different actors there. And now different sorts of accounts are are coming out based on fieldwork, and I think this is really going to enrich the study of Boko Haram and, and the understanding of Nigeria and the understanding of jihadism around the world. For my own part, I felt that what I could contribute was to look deeply at sources, both historical sources that helped place Boko Haram in a different context, and then also... Materials produced by the group itself, and then I should add also counter sources produced by especially these other Salafis who were adjacent to the movement and had interacted with it, but who were also eventually opposed to it. And a lot of that material is in Hausa, especially recorded lectures, videos, and so forth. Recently, actually, a a certain amount of that material has been Excerpted and translated into English through the, the Boko Haram reader, which came out with I think Hearst slash Oxford in, in I think twenty eighteen. And so a great deal or or at least the flavor of of the key ideas and materials is now available in English. So I think this will be an interesting resource for people to to look at. And and the editors did a nice job with that, with that volume. But I still thought that by taking, you know, a, again, a, a contextualized look at these sources and exploring them, that I could get a different lens on the movement. And and a lot of the analysts who have looked at the sources have treated them primarily as ideological documents and as, you know, uh, insights into uh, Boko Haram's view of the world and so forth. That's extremely important to me, but I also wanted to treat them as historical documents and to see, okay, how were these videos and, and recordings and so forth related to the events that Boko Haram was participating in and and the context that they were moving in. Arabic also comes into the picture to understand propaganda, to understand the intellectual sources that Muhammad Yusuf in particular was was drawing on or trying to draw on. And so I, I think it's really through the interaction between the Arabic sources and the house of sources that one can get at something fundamental. I should say this too, though, is a limitation of my work because I think that To go even deeper, one would want to have the Kanuri language as well. Most, I think, of of Boko Haram's propaganda has been in Hausa or Arabic, but there are materials, and some of these are included in in the reader. There are materials that are in Kanuri, and, of course, if down the line researchers really get access to a lot of former fighters, then then the Kanuri language would be crucial there as well.
0: So a couple of follow-ups. For the listeners who don't know what Kanuri is, can you please describe the language in the context of Nigeria, which has over 500 languages, of course. And also maybe just shed a little bit of light at how you came to study Salafism in northern Nigeria, or Nigeria more broadly.
1: Sure, so to take the language question first, yeah, the numbers, I mean, I've seen a range of different estimates for the number of sort of ethno-linguistic groups in Nigeria, right? I mean, 250 seems to be even the low estimate, and I've seen estimates ranging as high as 500. Hausa is extremely important in the north and even in other parts of the country because it's often, uh, it's a first language for, for tens of millions of people, but then it's a it's a second or third or fourth language for, you know, millions more. And and this is one of the reasons that Boko Haram's propaganda was often in Hausa rather than in Kanuri, because there are, you know, millions of Kanuri, ethnic Kanuri in the Northeast. But Boko Haram wanted to try to reach an audience that went well beyond that. And I think that, I mean, this issue of ethnicity and Boko Haram is tricky. I mean, the estimate that one often hears is that 70 percent of Boko Haram members are Kanuri ethnically. But it's still a multi-ethnic movement and, and a movement that I think in some ways consciously sought to draw in individuals, especially in migrants to the city of of Maiduguri from different ethnic groups, and and to build a coalition based more around religion and the society within a society rather than just an ethnic movement, per se. In terms of my own journey to studying Salafism, I got very interested by, by the time I was doing my master's at Georgetown, and then by the time I got to Northwestern for my PhD, in connections between Nigeria and the Arab world. And so I went to Nigeria for doctoral field work with the with the intention of looking broadly at Nigerians who had studied overseas in the Middle East. So people who had gone to Egypt, people who had gone to Sudan, people who had gone to Saudi Arabia. And the material that I found about the Nigerians who had studied in Saudi Arabia was particularly fascinating to me. And I found a particular kind of wealth of information about that, because it's not just Boko Haram that, that has produced a lot of you know, recordings and, and videos and so forth. It's also the, the main, what I would call the mainstream Salafi movement in Nigeria. People who aren't violent, you know, have produced more material than one could study in a lifetime, you know, hundreds and hundreds of videos and lectures and, and recordings and so forth. So that interest, you know, turned into my first book. I, I should say, too, I was interested, I think, particularly in the debates that the Salafis provoked about what it means to be Muslim and and the arguments that they made and the counter-arguments that they elicited from other Muslims who of course didn't want to be told by the Salafis that they weren't proper Muslims, right? So, so in a way studying Salafism was a way for me to try to get some insight just into where Islam is headed in the 21st century.
0: And those intra-Muslim debates are fascinating. Reading your book really opened up a whole new level of understanding uh, of Northeastern Nigeria in particular, but in your talk earlier today at the MSU African Studies Center, you pointed out that Boko Haram has had fraught relationships with Al Qaeda and the so called Islamic State. Can you tell the listeners what the nature of Boko Haram's alliance, as it is, with foreign jihadists uh, looks like today, and how these relationships with foreign jihadists may have helped to shape this Nigerian movement's trajectory? Maybe also how this could help us predict where it's going in the mm. future.
1: So, Boko Haram had a series of interactions with Al-Qaeda that really, I think, peaked around 2009 to 2011. So, prior to that, there had been kind of intermittent contact during the lifetime of Mohammed Yusuf. You get various perspectives on that from different sources, You know, from leaked U.S. government cables, mm-hmm. from... Al Qaeda's own accounts from accounts from within Boko Haram but the overall impression of of Yusuf's time was that this contact was was kind of stop and start and and there's even you know sources that say that Al Qaeda came to consider Yusuf unreliable. I think that Al Qaeda did not play any decisive role in the real turning point in Boko Haram's existence which was the the 2009 uprising in the northeast. In fact it seems from from my impressions of Al-Qaeda, that they would have counseled Yusuf against his decision to launch this mass uprising against the authorities because he basically took his movement and flung it against the strength of the Nigerian state and was crushed and he himself was killed. And again, from my impression of Al-Qaeda, I don't think they would have advised this kind of head-on approach. After he was killed, then some of the people who had been around Yusuf who had ties to Al-Qaeda's basically Saharan affiliate, which is called Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb or or AQIM, some of those individuals helped Abu Bakr Shakao make contact with AQIM. And for a time, there was training that AQIM provided to uh, Nigerian jihadists and, and some money that AQIM sent it's hard to get a sense of what the numbers involved were. So the only specific figure that I've ever seen is one transfer of, of 200,000 euros. There's, I've never seen concrete figures for the, the number of fighters who were trained and so forth. And so I would say to some extent, we still don't have the entire picture. The relationship pretty quickly went downhill, though, because AQIM and, and some of the Nigerians who were the, the bridges between Shakao and AQIM pretty quickly got unhappy with Shakao. He was uh, difficult to control. He would say one thing and do another. He really, really cracked down on internal dissent. And he was very brutal toward toward Muslim communities even at that early point. So even by late 2011, some of the people who had made those contacts between him and AQIM were already moving away from him and ended up breaking with him late 2011, early 2012. So I think al-Qaeda on the whole found that they couldn't they couldn't control Shekau, and, and and they couldn't build maybe the kind of relationship that the two sides would have wanted in the beginning. With the Islamic State, I think that they, A, I think they have kind of a lower bar for membership, and they've often been happy to accept the groups that have some issue with Al-Qaeda, right, often, you know, around the world when when portions of Al-Qaeda have broken off to join the Islamic State, it's, it's you know, uh, dissenters from within those movements. I think though that the relationship between Islamic State and Boko Haram has been relatively loose. So, you know, looking through Islamic State propaganda, definitely when you know Boko Haram has, has a military success, they will trumpet it. But they mention other parts of the world far more frequently, I would mm. say. Additionally, the Islamic State has not sent the same kinds of of you know highly visible leaders to Nigeria that they have to other places. So in Libya, for example, you had you know very visible Iraqi, Saudi leaders coming to Libya, showing their faces, showing their names, taking command of the Islamic State affiliate there. And, and I've never seen any equivalent of that in Nigeria. So I think it's kind of a lower priority. There's been the argument sometimes now from the Wall Street Journal, from elsewhere, that, that as the Islamic State's fortunes wane, in Syria and Iraq that they may invest more in, in their sort of far-flung affiliates and that Nigeria may be one of those places where, where the Islamic State invests more in
0: the relationship, but, but I'm still somewhat skeptical of that. And you mentioned in your talk the split that has happened within Boko Haram in which there's a sort of Boko Haram Shekha'o and there's a Boko Haram Islamic State affiliate. Can you just shed a little bit of light on that Split because not many listeners may be aware of this So the same problems that had
1: affected uh, Shaqal's relationship with Al-Qaeda cropped up fairly quickly in his relationship with the Islamic State and there's even a suggestion from some of the some of the anti-Shaqal sources from within the group that he was basically pressured into making this allegiance because the people around him wanted it more than he did and that he had initially been been resistant to it but then, even after the pledge was made, he continued to you know, lash out against people who dissented, he continued to, to be very uh, harsh on Muslim civilians and, and outsiders, and some of his theological positions by that time had gotten really, really, truly extreme, especially on the question of who counted as a Muslim and who didn't, more extreme, I would say, than, than at least most of the Islamic State. So in August of 2016 the Islamic State announced or, or conveyed that they had named a new governor for their quote-unquote West Africa province and elevated somebody who who seems to be a son of Muhammad Yusuf and so somebody with you know a young a young man but somebody with with this kind of genealogical and symbolic credibility. Since that time sometimes it has looked like Chacau is trying to still get back into the good graces of the Islamic State and still wants to be, you know, their representative. But in a way, in in various ways, this this what's now sometimes called Islamic State West Africa Province or or the Barnawi is, is the surname that Muhammad Yusuf's son uses. This Barnawi faction is estimated to have, you know, even double the number of fighters that are still with Chacau and and to be in some ways more militarily and, and politically sophisticated but i should say shakao you know has been has been reported dead many times he's been counted out in various ways and yet he still manages to hang on so so one would not want to underestimate
0: and the regional spread of the so-called war on terror from nigeria to niger and and chad and cameroon since 2015 in part, of course, a result of Boko Haram's regional activities, is among the most concerning, I think, uh, dimensions of Boko Haram's recent history. Which factors are driving this regionalization process in your estimation? What would you say it seemed that its impact has been so far?
1: So I think there's a few things at work. Early on, I mean, definitely, you know, if we look at the Lake Chad Basin, Those are countries that have been countries, regions, places that have been interconnected for a long time and where the the political border does not always equal a a cultural border, a linguistic border, a religious border. So even during, you know, and the Kanuri ethnic group crosses those borders and and the house of language crosses those borders and, and their, you know, deep shared histories and so forth. And I think Boko Haram has drawn on that a bit. Even during Muhammad, Yusuf, Muhammad Yusuf's lifetime, he, or, or at least people close to him, would go to Niger to preach and recruit. After that, you know, Boko Haram has sometimes used northern Cameroon as a rear base. So, you know, there's been a, a long-standing kind of trans-border element to Boko Haram. I think, though, a big turning point came in 2015. So after Boko Haram in, in 2014 and in early 2015 had carved out a lot of territory and said, basically, this is our state, we, we control this the neighboring countries came to react very negatively. I think they, particularly the governments of Chad and Niger, became alarmed, I think, and, and came to feel that Nigeria was losing control of the situation. So in early 2015, they, the armies of Chad and Niger came into Nigerian territory and began dislodging Boko Haram from, from towns that it controlled. That then elicited a, a set of, of serious reprisal attacks, you know, including you know, bombings in, in, in Jemena and Chad and so forth, and uh, significant waves of attacks in, in southeastern Niger. So, you know, in a sense, they got caught, the, the regional governments, I think, got caught in a bit of a bind where they felt like they needed to intervene in Nigeria to, to prevent that situation from getting out of control, but then they faced this form of blowback.
0: And U.S. foreign policy has played a role in this, of course. The U.S. has drone bases uh, in the area, uh, famously as The Intercept uh, reported uh, in Niger, but also uh, has a relationship with Chad. The French military, of course, is active and present in the region and has been for a long time. How has U.S. foreign policy in Nigeria since 9-11, as part of its African foreign policy, affected the, the history of... Boko Haram and and how will it affect its future, because it seems to me that the militarization of U.S. foreign policy has done very little to, you know, eliminate uh, Boko Haram, and in some ways it has legitimized it Mm. in certain circles, and you and your work seem to be quite skeptical of the effectiveness of this heavy-handed approach. It seems that the rise of Boko Haram, you know, is a political issue that requires a political solution. So how might the U.S. reorient its foreign policy in this region, and particularly in Nigeria in dealing with Boko Haram, to make it possible to create the conditions in which such a viable political solution might come about?
1: Thanks. These are, these are huge questions. I think the American response to 9-11 created a number of different conditions and, and environments around the world that I think inadvertently gave something of a boost to Boko Haram and that, uh, to movements like Boko Haram, and I think that also gave governments around the world certain problematic tools. So to explain a little more what I mean, I think that the American response to 9-11, first of all, I think it, I think it angered a lot of people around the world the american invasions of afghanistan and iraq you know seemed heavy-handed seemed disproportionate and even unrelated especially in the case of iraq to to 9/11 itself you know and and actually uh, you know reading different accounts from jihadists from not just from nigeria but from elsewhere a lot of a lot of them talk about watching on television you know developments in iraq and so forth and feeling personally angry and wanting to respond violently i think also the the US response to 911 has sent a strong signal that at least Washington doesn't consider negotiation with jihadists feasible. So after Boko Haram's big uprising in 2009, you had some voices from from the north or from the northeast saying, "Look, you know, in Nigeria here we had we had a conflict and insurgency in the Niger Delta related to many different complex issues there, you know, environmental issues, economic issues, political issues. Uh, but we dealt with that through an amnesty, right? We amnestied the fighters and even, even paid some of them, you know, and nobody, I think, Nigerian or otherwise would say that the Niger Delta amnesty program has been perfect. But again, you know, some of these voices in the Northeast said, why, why is this off the table for Boko Haram? Why can we not respond in this way? There would be all kinds of... Arguments one could make for why an amnesty would never work But I think part of the reason why things like an amnesty were never seriously on the table is again Because of this context of the war on terror and because of some signals that Washington has sent I think also Washington's view of of Al Qaeda and more recently Islamic State and and sort of the rhetoric of the war on terror has, has furnished some tools to African politicians and I think at moments when Nigerian politicians were particularly keen to downplay How security force abuses were driving the conflict or or to drive other problematic when Nigerian politicians were keen to downplay problematic aspects of policy They were often the most quick and keen to invoke al-qaeda, you know, and to say Boko Haram is al-qaeda in West Africa or to say more recently, you know Boko Haram needs to be understood first and foremost as part of the Islamic State. This has been I think convenient, basically, at, at, at moments of crisis and difficulty to, to try to uh, shift, shift attention away from local causes and to try to also catch Washington's attention and, and you know, attract more support. So those are some of the, you know, dynamics I would point to. I, I think much more inadvertently than deliberately, but I do think the war on terror atmosphere has, has actually made the crisis harder to solve. Going forward, I mean, for myself, I do think that the united states could could at least could at least convey that it would not stand in the way of any dialogue between Boko Haram and the Nigerian government. I mean there are many many obstacles to such a dialogue taking place. There have been efforts at it before that have that have failed for various reasons there 's profound mistrust between Boko Haram different factions of boko Haram and, and the Nigerian state. On the other hand, there have been you know, limited deals that the two sides have struck, you know, for releases of hostages, possibly even for ceasefires. So it does seem that there might be some possibility of a larger dialogue taking place. I'm not sure that I I wouldn't say necessarily that Washington should take any role in that. But I think that if Washington sends the signal that it wouldn't try to shut that down or try to interfere in any way, that, that, that that could be helpful
0: maybe to bring the conversation to a close just a few days ago nigeria held its presidential elections and mohammed buhari uh, seems to have won do you think his victory bodes well for resolving this terrible conflict in the northeast uh, will he be able to break the stalemate he's had a an interesting approach to boko haram he even claimed at one point to have destroyed it uh, but he seems to have a more pragmatic approach than his predecessors?
1: I think particularly early on, he he won some praise for appointing officers from the northeast to prominent positions. I think, you know, he, he was seen early on because of his own military background as somebody who would have the expertise and the experience to confront the challenge of Boko Haram, he has stood up the presidential initiative for the Northeast and, and other kinds of you know, programs directed at non-military aspects of the conflict. At the same time, though, you know, his, his promises to and, and statements that he had ended the insurgency were, were not true. And, and it, you know, in fact, observers were getting very concerned at the, you know, late in 2018 and, and up until the present about some of the momentum, particularly on the side of the, the Islamic State, West Africa province. So for his second term, to me, and maybe this is my own sort of status quo bias, but, but I think Boko Haram going to be around for a while. I don't think it's going to be you taking cities, you know taking, cities, uh, you know, taking uh, the city of Maiduguri or anything like that. But I do think it's going to linger on because I think the government and the military have had tremendous difficulty in attempting to, to secure the countryside. And, and oftentimes in the countryside, they've found themselves on the defensive and, and even abandoning positions to, to Boko Haram or, or to Iswap. And I think too some of these problems are are structural, a recurring pattern of abuses and collective punishment by the military, a tendency to deflect or 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 respond or lash out at any criticism, especially on this question of security force abuses. And so I think in, in that kind of atmosphere it's hard to really make deep changes to to the military's approach and and to the overall approach so yeah i expect boko haram to be around even through the entire second term which of course is is a tragedy for for the country and particularly for the northeast
0: well on that sobering note uh, thank you alex thurston for speaking with africa past and present thank you yeah
1: really great to be here
0: Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at Africa.Podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.